Welcome back, everybody, to College Football Unmasked. I'm super excited to be here today. We have Brooks Austin, film guru, does a lot of content for Georgia. Brooks, how are you today? I'm doing well, man. I, I, I guess I'll take the title of film guru. I, I feel like I'm one of the very few that does it. So uh, if, if that's what you want to call me, that's what I am. I'm the film guru. I definitely call myself the film guy. I wouldn't go as far as to say guru. I'm not quite that smart just yet. Hey, man. Hey. We have different terms for it, but in the end, it's the same thing because it's exactly what I'd like to do. And, you know, I think that I'd really like to kick this off for a player I actually had you watch a film review I did on, and that's JT Daniels because he has looked great so far with the dogs. Why did it take them so long to get JT out there? I think at this point, based off the way he's looked when he's on the field, you just have to trust the things that Kirby tells you when he says he wasn't ready. Yeah. Um, at, at this point, that's all you've got. I, I, I am, I'm one of these believers that thinks that, like, look, hey man, no, nobody wants to win football games more than Kirby Smart. Nobody's a better talent evaluator. Um, no, no, you know, chubby boy sitting on a couch behind a camera like me can sit there and tell you that so-and-so is better than such-and-such if I don't actually see what's going on at practice. And I trust that Kirby saw those things in practice, and he saw the fact that, uh, JT wasn't ready. So if he's not ready, he's just not ready. Um, and, and your job as a, a head coach and, and the you know CEO of your program is to protect your talent and protect the people that chose to come to your school to play for you. Um, and I think that's exactly what Kirby did uh, by waiting as long as he did to play JT Daniels. It's the only thing that I have uh, to rely upon. I'm not going to sit here and say that Kirby doesn't know how to evaluate talent. Again, it goes back to that, what we, what we just talked about. He's much better at those things than I could ever be. Um, so you just have to trust him at that point. Well, man, I mean, what did he have? Six, five stars per 24-7 two years ago <laughs> in that class? The guy, hey, he, he can recruit and he can evaluate some talent. And, you know, you pointed to something that I kind of noticed in my video, and I think it's really interesting you said it. You said about protecting him. And when I watched JT at USC, all of the positive, they flew off the screen the natural yeah, yeah. arm talent, the unlimited platform that he has that's super rare but so coveted. But that offensive line at USC, man, they didn't give him much protection. And by the end of that tenure, you could see some of the mechanics kind of change solely based off the lack of protection and how many hits he had. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. Now, going forward, and what do you see from JT in this Munkin system? Because I know both I know you've been super high on Monk, and I really was high on the hire. So what do you see from that going forward? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you just know Todd Munkin's background, you would know that he, he comes from a wide receivers coach's background. So as someone who's worked with wide receivers his whole entire life, you would imagine that his personal bias when going into a position like an offensive coordinator would be to trust the one-on-one -on -one capabilities of said wide receivers, especially if you're at a program like Georgia. Um, that's recruited the wide, wide receiver position like they have over the last two cycles. Talking guys like George Pickens, Dominic Blaylock, um, you know, Jermaine Burton, Justin Robinson, Marcus Rossimi, Jack Saint. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And then talking about what they're doing at the tight end position moving forward. So just based off of what Munkin's history is as an offensive coordinator and where he was prior to what he was doing as an offensive coordinator, you would know that his tendencies are to – trust wide receivers in one-on-one -on -one positions. And I think that's what JT does best. Like he said after the uh, uh, Mississippi State game, if you're not going to throw it to him, don't recruit him. 
Um, and I think that's what JT's done more than any quarterback we've had at Georgia or they've had at Georgia over the last couple of years. If he sees a wide receiver in a one-on-one -on -one position, he's going to take the chance. He's going to give that guy an opportunity to win. Um, and I think that's what that's the type of skill set that pairs best with an offensive coordinator like Munkin that's constantly trying to drive the ball down the field. And not only just the willingness to push it downfield, the mm -hmm. ability to put it into those windows to allow those guys to really just maximize and, that. And you know what? Like, it's not that he's – it's not that Daniels has been, you know, 110% accurate on those opportunities. It's that he's given his guys chances to win, and if he misses, he misses either really, really long or really, really short in the sense that either no one's catching the ball or his receiver's fighting back to the ball to draw – a pass interference. So I think that's been the most important thing. Like we can, we can deal with uh, underthrown balls where we're drawing pass interferences. We can deal with those type of opportunities where you're actually giving your wide receiver a chance to go high point the football. What we can't deal with is what we saw with Stetson and what we saw with Dewan for the longest time where quarterbacks weren't exactly giving their wide receivers a chance to win. And that's the problem. If you're overthrowing guys by 10 yards, 15 yards downfield, you're not hitting the layups. You're not hitting the three-point shots that we're leaving wide open in the corner, uh, which is exactly what Kirby was talking about leading up to the decision to ultimately start JT Daniels um, against Mississippi State. You know, I love what you just pointed out about there being a difference between missing a guy and then missing a guy with purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And I I've pointed that out before in my film, but I think you hit the nail on the head. JT's been really good with that. And, you know, you said something else that's piqued my interest because I know both of us have been on Twitter super <laughs> just excited about this move, wherever it comes down to. Arik Gilbert, maybe, we don't know yet, in the transfer portal. And he says he wants to come home or be closer to home at least, if that's the reasoning. Georgia looks like it could be in a good position to have him. Talk to me about what that system could look like when you already have Darnell Washington, the six foot seven freshman out of Las Vegas. Yeah, to me, it's not even, it's not really a question about what Darnell, what happens to Darnell. It's more of a question about Brock Bowers. Um, I think Brock and Eric Gilbert have a very similar skill set. Um, Eric's just a supersized version of him. He's six foot five. 230 pounds and and can play traditional wide receiver if you lined him up in the sec and said hey go play x or go play z he's going to be able to do so brock's the very same caliber but the only difference is brock's six foot five 225 pounds so you're sacrificing about two or three inches and you're sacrificing about 25 pounds that's how much more of a freak that Eric is um even just considered or considerably lined up against a guy like brock bowers so i'm extremely high on now the conversations about Darnell. Um, I think we've seen it play true this year in the SEC. I, I don't know how much he's able to separate. Um, when you put him in one-on-one -on -one situations, with whether it be linebackers, uh, safeties, or corners in the SEC at this point in time, where he's at right now in his development, um, he's having a really, really big problem separating, creating separation. Um, but he's so big that it doesn't really matter. But what has happened with Darnell is – He's become so much more or so much better of a blocker than I ever could have imagined him becoming. From what he was running out there in Las Vegas to what he's being asked to do right now, just 12 months later, um, is an astronomical difference. I mean, I can't, I can't go into further, far enough detail to explain to you how much of a good job Todd Hartley has done in developing this young man's blocking skills. Um, there's no way to quantify it. But 
the the questions about whether Averick comes back, I mean, or comes to Georgia and goes to UGA, um, I don't think those really affect Darnell. I think they more affect um, what they would do with Brock Bowers moving in the future. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And, you know, I had the other week we had Denzel Johnson, former TCU safety. He played safety with the Tennessee Titans. And we were talking about kind of the ebbs and flows of college football. We've seen that special defensive backs that a lot of defenses are running now, guys like Minka Fitzpatrick, LeCount, they can kind of do a lot of different things and mask a lot of different things. But on the offensive side of that, we feel like the tight end is kind of also that. If you look at the NFL right now, you have all these athletic tight ends that are really stretching a defense. I would go as far as to say that the progression and the the movement at the tight end position has caused those reactions from the defense. If you were, if you were would recall, you know, five or ten years ago, the outside linebacker was a, a legitimate position. Teams ran four threes. They ran yeah, three linebackers: a Mike, a Sam, and a Will. And then all of a sudden, tight ends started getting into the game where we've got guys like Aaron Hernandez that are six three to or six four and 230 pounds that can run four fives and, and run routes like a receiver, great separation like a receiver, and they became a mismatch. Guys like Kyle Pitts can, became a mismatch for outside linebackers, and then you saw teams really starting to move towards a nickel-based defense where they're playing five defensive backs 90% of the time, I would imagine, in college football nowadays. Heck, in the NFL, they track these stats, and as of last year, 80% of base defenses were in the nickel formation. The reason they've moved to that is because of the progression at the tight end position, not the other way around. Offenses weren't trying to figure out a way to balance nickel defenses. Defenses were trying to figure out what they were going to do with three-by-one sets when the tight end is the additional wide receiver and he's six foot five and can run a four-five and run routes like wide receivers. That's been the progression of modern football. Yeah, it makes it much harder to effectively stop an offense when they have another caliber of a wide receiver out there that your linebacker just can't account for. You know, it's funny. That's something that's always tickled me is you'll you'll see these teams and they say, oh, we base out of a 3-4 or we base out of a 4-3. And I just kind of laugh to myself and I'm like, well, you you base out of a nickel now, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been that's been my my I wouldn't call it pet peeve, but. Um, that's been my argument with Georgia fans. It's like, look, guys, yeah, I know your coach lists you on a depth chart as a 3-4 defense, but watch the film on Saturday. Watch what they're doing on Saturday. When a team comes out in 11 personnel, one back, one tight end, three wide receivers, um, guys, your defense is in a 4-2-5. That's what they play. Um, and if you'd also take a look and extrapolate it, most offenses are staying – their base personnel is 11 personnel. That's what they stay in all game long. 70% of their snaps are out of 11 personnel. So guess what? You don't run a 3-4 anymore. You are a 4-2-5 defense. That's what you are. You can't afford to run that 4-3 or 3-4 anymore. Not with these offenses and the way they're stretching it. I mean, you know, even Saban, he tried to hang on for as long as he could. But the evolution was there. And I, you know what, I, you, you really made a great point. I really liked that about how the, the offenses weren't changing to the defenses. The defenses are changing to the offenses. I really liked that. And you, you talked about another player I kind of wanted to talk to you about because to me, he's one of the most interesting players in the draft, and that is Kyle Pitts. Because what is the value of a Kyle Pitts? 
Well, here's the deal. I mean, a lot of people want to com- compare him to Evan Ingram, right? The linebacker um, out of Ole Miss a couple of years ago, six foot five guy that runs as smooth as he does, is as explosive as he is. Um, but the difference to me is when I watch Kyle on tape, I-, I see Florida doing a lot of things where they're running power, they're running counter to his nub set side, where they're asking Kyle Pitts to manhandle a guy like Malik Herring or block down on a guy like Will Anderson from Alabama. So they're asking this young man to be an end-of-the-line blocker, and that's what he's going to get asked to do when he goes to the next level in the NFL. So to me, the value of a guy like Kyle is that, hey, you you can put him at the end of the line of scrimmage and run plays where the defense doesn't automatically get given away that, oh, Kyle's in the game and he's an end-of-the-line blocker, so they must be running play action. That's not the case with what Florida does. If they've got him on the end of the line, you might get, you know, play action post and a dig off of him, or you might get heavy run action or power to his point, or you might get seven man protection. There's a lot of times where, uh, you know, they're asking him to be a part of the pass protection scheme instead of even releasing out. So that's what I think the difference is when people say, oh, well, Kyle Pitts is just a, a, a stretched out wide receiver. No, you're wrong. You're, you're, you're not watching what's actually happening on Saturdays. They're asking the kid to do everything that he's going to get asked to do when he goes to the NFL. And that, to me, is important when you're evaluating a kid like that and trying to extrapolate what he's going to be on the next level. Yeah, I mean, there's not too much that he hasn't proved already in his tenure at Florida, right? I mean, there's not too many boxes left to check for him. And he's the kind of guy that could really flip an offense in the NFL and really let them unlock what it is they want to do. We see. Yeah, I was just, I was just thinking if you if if you were to throw him on like a an Arizona Cardinals roster, things would get really 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 interesting, right? I mean, to to be able to command the middle of the field, um, like they want to do with all the heavy RPO actions that they do, a guy like that in that type of system would be absolutely frightening. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because that's where I was going. It, it, we saw the evolution where we have these guys like Waller with Vegas just completely mm-hmm. changing the way they're able to run their offense. And then I think to you hit the nail on the head, man, the Cardinals, that just seems like such a fit and it just seems like it would work out so well. But I think whoever gets him is just going to be ecstatic to get him wherever he falls. The thing I, I, I think I want to ask you the most about Florida, because I've heard two different schools of thought on this. I've heard a lot of people saying that they don't know how effective Florida will become the end game against your Ohio State's Clemson's Alabama because they don't have a consistent run game. But then to your point, there's another camp and I kind of find myself in the middle to this side of, well, they do so many different wrinkles within their passing game and they incorporate their running back into the passing game that they can still hurt you. The, the running game not being as prevalent as in the past is kind of an obscure fact because they get things done in such an effective way. Yeah, so I think, I think that's Dan Mullen at its crux. Like, if you go back and look through his history as an offensive coordinator and his offensive play caller, like, his run games are most effective when he has a quarterback that can run the football. Um, guys like Dak Prescott, guys like Tim Tebow, when he doesn't have that immediate run threat at the quarterback position, what he reverts to is extended handoffs, what I call extended handoffs, where we're talking about bubble screens, stop screens, halfback uh, jets, halfback wheels, things like this, where 
they're extensions of the, the, the run game in the sense that it's just a nice, easy completion for his quarterback, get the ball out on the edge and pick up six or seven yards. Not every bubble screen, not every stop screen, not every ball thrown to Kadarius Toney is designed for him to take it 85 yards. What it's designed to do is stretch the box, get guys out of the box. What it's designed to do is to make Georgia play with six men in the box all game. And then as the game progresses, they end up flexing the sixth linebacker in between the third wide receiver and the end of the line of scrimmage to where now we've got a five-man box that makes it really, really easy to run the football. That's where Dan Mullen has progressed as an offensive coordinator, um, and that's the difference. When people tell me Florida doesn't have a run game, what I want to say is, hey, are you, are you counting the bubbles? Are you counting the, the stop screens to Kadarius Tony? Are you counting the easy RPO actions they get, that they give to Kyle Trask? Are you counting those things that are, are an extension of the run game, or are you just looking at the box score that says, oh, well, they only rushed for 85 yards last week, so their run game must be terrible? No. Um, their play calling's excellent. <laughs> that, that, that's what I look at it when I see it on tape. And that's the difference between take and taking a look at what's actually happening on Saturdays. Yeah. You know, I, when I first started looking at it, I was like, oh, well, their running game, it's not working the same as it used to. But then as I started watching the plays and watching them play, I was like, I don't think it matters because they're getting it involved in a totally different way to where it doesn't have to be your traditional thing. They're making it work just as well with next to no fall off. I mean, I say next to, you look at the season Kyle Trask is having and there doesn't seem to be a fall off within the Florida offense. Now, remember uh, I am a there's, Bama fan. There's really not. <laughs> there, there isn't, and that's the scary part. Remember I'm a Bama fan, so don't there. hurt me too bad here. The argument of Trask versus Mac Jones for Heisman, where are you on that? Um, I, I'm a believer that both of them are a, a proponent of the system they have around them. That's um, I think if, if we're going to be talking about Kyle Trask, we need to be talking about Kyle Pitts. If we're going to be talking about Mac Jones, we need to be talking about Devontae Smith. Um, but that's not the way this world works anymore. All the, all they really care about is stats and the quarterback position and all of that. So if it comes down to that, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you, Bama fan, that it's probably going to be, Kyle Trask but if you were to ask me who is the most impactful who is the most important player in the SEC right now offensively I think it's Devontae Smith just because of what they can do with him offensively like everyone thought when Jalen Waddle went down first play of the game against Tennessee that Devontae Smith was somehow going to fall off well we just saw him go for what 260 last week like the, the young man is a really really good football player they're gonna give him the Bolitnikoff award the question becomes now is like if I if I were to do a Heisman slate and I know you can only invite five I would probably invite Kyle Trask, Kyle Pitts, Devontae Smith, uh, Mac Jones and then just throw one to Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence just give it to one of the other right you can only bring five I think those have been the best five players in college football and then we can argue about whether or not Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence gets in but those four individuals what Kyle Pitts is doing right now is historic at the tight end position. Devontae Smith's breaking damn near every record in the SEC at the wide receiver position, both career and in season with only 10 games of a regular season. So what, what are we really talking about? And if we do give it to a quarterback this year, I think we might as well just go ahead from, from this point forward and tie it to the Davey O'Brien Award. If, whoever wins that, 
we'll just give it to the Heisman Trophy winner. We'll just give it to quarterbacks. Uh, there's so much I want to unpack here, but so much of what you just said made me so happy. So I guess starting with your list, right? I think it's a phenomenal list. And listen, people will raise eyebrows when they hear that one of the big three traditional quarterbacks is going to be left out, right? And mm -hmm. either Lawrence or Fields. But to, to your point, Lawrence and Fields, through no fault of their own, they haven't played as many games as these other guys have. And are we supposed to start penalizing games for being played, right? Like, how are we going to start weighing the ability of these guys like Pitts, Trask, Jones, Smitty? Pandora's box, brother. Pandora's box. That's yeah. what we're getting into right now. In a COVID season where we don't really have answers, we only have questions, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have situations like this. You're going to have arguments like this. Um, and to be honest with you, I think no matter who wins the Heisman, no matter who wins the national championship, no matter who wins the SEC championship, I think you're looking at a season where it's going to be almost impossible for us to look back in 10, 15 years where we say, oh, remember 2020 where Ohio State only played four games and got into a playoff? Or do you remember 2020 where – Justin Fields only had 1,100 yards and only played in four games and got invited to the Heisman ceremony. Do you remember 2020 when this or this or this happened? Like, I, I think it's inevitable. I think the word everyone's trying to avoid is the term asterisk. But if you've seen how many kids are opting out, if you've seen how many kids are transferring, if you've seen how many teams on tape that look like they've kind of given up midway through the third quarter, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of programs in college football that have understood that this year's just different. Like, this year may not count as much as everyone else. And matter of fact, the NCAA told you it didn't count. The NCAA came out and said, everyone gets a free year of eligibility. It does not count, like quite literally. Um, so do we slap an asterisk on it or do we just move along and get about into these conversations and these debates that we're in right now of, well, do you penalize a guy for only playing four games? Or do you penalize a guy for only playing 10? Or do you prorate it to a 12-game season? I don't know what you do, man. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the situation we are in. We are in unprecedented times with a situation where they're trying to keep the precedence in terms of a national championship and a Heisman Trophy winner and a Davey O'Brien and a Maxwell Award winner. They're trying to keep precedence in an unprecedented time. So – where do we go from there? It sounds to me like we're in a conundrum. <laughs> we're, we're absolutely in a conundrum. And I think what people don't realize is how close all of college football was to not being played. I know that sounds like a simple statement. Of course, we No, I'm right there with you. I, I tweeted it out last week when the Vanderbilt game got postponed. I said, man, if you, if you would have told me in mid-March, like, hey, Georgia's going to get to play nine games and it looks like we might get a national – title like playoff or college football playoff I'd have said freaking sign me up whatever I got to do like just get me there I um, might have laughed honestly I think everybody needed it but oh yeah everyone needed it but they should have known that it comes with consequence and it comes with issues and it comes with problems and it comes with deficiencies let's call them what they are they are deficiencies in the platform and in what we've got and in the processes but it is what it is where at this point now we've actually had football to talk about on Saturdays which I'm eternally grateful for. Absolutely. I couldn't be more thankful for it. And to your point, I never thought that we would be here in March. Um, I just didn't see a way. I'm so happy we were. I think the other thing you said, too, that 
I don't think people realize how much of this season was about money for the NCAA because <laughs> the NCAA is look when you already have March Madness get canceled, a large cash cow for the NCAA is gone kaput bam yeah and then when you have the structure of college football as it is for the cash cow of the NCAA crumbling you're seeing things like what we have in Colorado where now we finally have a power five school that's partnering with a gambling agency to market Mm -hmm. their school and look ingenuity is king in things like this so I'm, I'm super fascinated to see kind of how all of this plays forward. I think your other point you made that I loved is if, if we're just giving this to a quarterback with less than par stats talking Heisman, let's just tie it in with the Davey O'Brien award. I love that because I feel like we've gotten so far away from who is the most valuable player, who is the best player in college football to who is the best quarterback in college football. And those are two different conversations sometimes. Yeah. I mean, where do you where do you really go with the Heisman? I, I think you're hitting on right there. I mean, it almost seems like it's been a popularity award. I think since 2000, basically since Reggie Bush has won the Heisman, the only two individuals that are non-quarterbacks that have won the Heisman are both of the Alabama running backs. And you can check this for me. I think it's literally Trent Richardson, or excuse me, Mark Ingram and Derrick Henry are the only two non-quarterbacks to win the Heisman in the last I think like 15 years so it's been quite a while it's become a quarterback's winning sport so or a winning uh job so I mean yeah every I'll look it up right now and Um, going back before that predominantly quarterback starting from the Eric Crouch era at Nebraska there there was a there was a time period in the 80s where running backs went eight of or nine of ten so okay. from Marcus, actually, literally from 1973 to 1986, only two non-running backs won the, the Heisman Trophy. So that's wow. 11 of 13. And then you get into the early 2000s where we're talking about guys like Chris Winkie, Eric Crouch, Carson Palmer, Jason White, Matt Weiner. Then Reggie Bush wins in 05. Troy Smith, Tim Tebow, Sam Bradford. Then Mark Ingram wins in 2009. Cam Newton, RG3, Johnny Menzel, James Winston, Marcus Mariota. Then Derrick Henry wins in 2015. Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Joe Burr. So it's literally been a quarterback's winning position or winning trophy since, I would say, 2000. There's been three running right. backs since 2000 to win the award. So – yeah, it's a, it's a quarterback's, you know, kind of trophy to win. And I understand that that kind of goes with the ebbs and flows of offense, right? The passing game is in, but you would think that the passing game being in would lend to a higher percentage of receivers or tight ends also being in the consideration for Heisman, which we haven't seen happen. And I think Devontae Smith, I think you made a great point. He – what can you take away from him right now? I mean, when he's gone up against Stingley both times, he has been phenomenal. And when he's got all the eyes on him, he's done nothing but answer the call. If you're a GM right now, who do you have as wide receiver one in this year's draft, him or Chase? Yeah, I would think we'd have to take a look at what I need to. And here's the problem about opting out. Like, 
I don't know what Jamar Chase looks like right now. I don't know what he's been doing over the last eight months since he's opted out. I don't know what's going on or however long it's been since he's opted out. And not only that, I haven't seen the young man on tape. So what, what do I know about what I'm getting? You know what I'm saying? And, and with Devontae Smith, I know that I'm getting 16 and a half yards per reception which is close to his career average. I know I'm getting a developed route runner. I know I'm getting a guy that fights hard at the, the high point. But the other difference is with Devontae, I know I'm getting a six-foot to a six-foot-and-a-half wide receiver at 180 pounds. With Jamar, I know I'm getting a 6'3", a, a bigger body type of guy. So at that point, again, it, it goes all back to what we have in terms of the sample size and where those guys feel best about the measurables. The other question that – Everyone wanted to opt out, but what we don't know is, are we going to have an NFL combine? Are, are, are we? Like, do we know if we're going to have one of those? That's a um, if question. so, what does it look like? That type of thing. So I believe the NFL combine last year was prior to COVID and all this stuff. So they went up there to Indianapolis. They had a good time. Everybody ran their 40s. Everybody looked great. But are we going to be able to have that this year? And what does the product look like? And and how much of a condensed process is it? What does the pre-draft process look like? That Those are the questions. And to be honest with you, with the lower end of the guys, it hurts. It really does. Whether or not they're going to get picked up. But it really hurts guys like in this conversation. Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith. What it would probably come down to between the team that's picking 12th that needs a wide receiver and the next team that's picking 17th that needs a wide receiver is, well, we can't figure out who's better on tape. So show me the measurables. Well, guess what? We don't have better verified measurables anymore. So um, we're just going to take a guess. So it hurts the team on the fact that they're taking a guess. And it hurts the athlete in the sense that, well, let's say the guess is Devontae Smith and not Jamar Chase. Well, J Devontae Smith going 12 and now Jamar Chase going 17th because he doesn't have tape. And that's the only evaluation point that we have just costs, you know, Jamar Chase about $4 million. So, was it really worth opting out at that point? And, and that's where we're getting to at this point in this evaluation process is what are the evaluation points that teams actually have? They have the tape. That's about it at this point. Yeah, you know, you hit an interesting point. It's something that I've been big on, especially this year. I wrote an article not too long ago talking about the development issue that the University of Texas is facing, having only six first-round draft picks since that Vince Young 2006 draft. None of those draft picks have come on the offensive side of the ball either after that 06 draft. And I was pointing out that, you know, while Texas still sends people to the draft, it's a marketable difference getting that first round money and that second round money. I mean, the yeah. numbers are much different. Now, as time is expiring here, I just have one last topic to get with you real quick because we've pointed out a lot of the asterisks that can be applied to this season. Is this season the perfect reason for expanding the college football playoffs? Yeah, it would sound great, right? But, again, that, that's that famous term, Pandora's box. Once you open it up to eight teams, you're stuck at eight teams moving forward. I mean, you're going to have an eight-team playoff. If you go to eight teams this year, you're going to eight teams forever. And I don't think college football is ready to make that because at that point it really becomes, hey, we're kind of just doing this for the money. I appreciate y'all, but we're really just doing this for the money. Thanks for everybody for watching. Thanks, young men, for sacrificing your bodies for an additional football game. At that point, guys, we're, we're literally talking about teams like Alabama and Clemson and, for the better part, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Georgia, who are perennial contenders for the college football playoff. 
we're asking those young men to play 15, maybe 16 games in their college football career per season, per season. With so no it may not sound like a lot, but by the time you play four or five seasons in college football, you've been preparing for four or five more game days. Okay, so that's five more practices per week. That's 20 practices per season. That's, you know, four games or 20 practices per career. That's five games per career that you're adding on to these How young, many hits? young men. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hit. Like, people don't they, – they just think, oh, it's one more game. Well, yeah, it is one more game. But it's also the most, uh, you know, critical game. It's the most high-atmosphere game. It's the game that's most likely – to produce, you know, some type of major injury, or it's the type of game that's most likely to make you play through a major injury. You think if the University of Georgia was up for a playoff contention spot right now, that Trey Hill would have had both of his knees scoped last week? I'm, I'm betting you no. I'm betting you the answer is no. He probably would have played the rest of the season with whatever, you know, minuscule injury he had going on with his knees. But they're not in playoff contention right now. So he can go get his stuff cleaned up. Um, everywhere that's else, that's point. not the case. There's guys playing at Alabama that are fighting through, I guarantee you're fighting through concussion issues. There's guys at Alabama that are fighting through knee injuries. There's guys at Alabama and Clemson that are fighting through concu- or, uh, shoulder injuries. Maybe their neck hurts in, a, in an odd, funny way. Maybe their hip hurts in an odd, funny way. That is the, uh, you know, actuality of this sport, of this gladiator sport that we cover and that I used to play. That is the reality of the situation. Concussion protocol only goes so far. Shoulder injury protocol only goes so far. Knee injury protocol only goes so far. At some point, it comes down to the player and whether or not that player is going to, quote, unquote, gut it out and play tough. That's the reality of what we do. Yeah, and that's – I'm so on the fence about it because I'm the type – I'm never going to – the fan in me is never going to argue with more football. But then we have to look at the human side of this and – kind of ask the question which I think we could both maybe agree that it's already airing on that well we're just doing this for profit but if you expand the playoffs to your point it becomes unfathomable that it's for any other reason and that's where I think we get into some gray areas I mean but to be honest with you man we see we see that if you're really paying attention you see the harsh reality of the situation Every single time a, a coach gets fired with a $15 million buyout, we see the harsh reality of the situation when a new coach gets an extension at, you know, say a Clemson and gets paid $7.5 million a year. We see the harsh reality of these things where NFL coaches aren't making near as much as offensive coordinators for a school like Georgia. There's offensive coordinators in the NFL that don't make two, $2.1 million like Todd Munkin. Okay. So, we see the harsh reality everywhere. You've just got to open your eyes to look at it and to pay attention to it. Um, prime example, the, the, the FBI investigation that was going on with NCAA basketball, they caught Creighton, which, again, Creighton, Creighton basketball, where Doug McDermott went to school. They caught Creighton giving out $100,000 for shooting guards in their recruiting class. $100,000 at Creighton. So all the dirty information is out there. People just turn a blind eye to what they accept and what they don't. They just don't want to look. They don't want to dig into deep what the actual realities of the situation are going on. So when a, a rule like national name, image, and likeness comes around, everybody scoffs at the idea. Oh, it's going to ruin the integrity of college sports. No, they're just bringing it to light. They're just bringing it right in front of your face as opposed to the last hundred years. 
where people are talking about what's actually going on and you just don't want to listen. Prime example, I just talked about Creighton being tied up in the FBI investigation for college basketball. There is a autobiography by Vince Lombardi where his first college coaching job was at Army and their chancellor of athletics spoke about Creighton cheating back in 1928. So people have been cheating forever. People have been paying college athletes forever, okay? Y'all just ain't really dug deep enough to find it out. And y'all are about to find out that these kids are extremely, extremely marketable, and they're actually about to do it in front of your face and actually do it per code and legally. And I got a feeling that a lot of people are going to be upset about it. But they're only going to be upset about it because they don't know the actual reality over the last 100 years of college sports. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Brooks, we have a minute left on this Zoom call, but I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I came from a legal background. I came from law. And actually, my first big break into the sporting world was the We Are United movement out of the Pac-12. I covered Cassidy Woods and his experience going through that movement and kind of what I felt were some of the inadequacies of the NCAA and their pay structure but I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Brooks, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute honor. I'd love to get you back on anytime. No doubt, Todd. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Thank you so much.